Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome to you all. I'm Bill Glaskell at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. Our program is produced by the Volcker Alliance in partnership with the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And with me today is our great Penn IUR co-host, Susan Wachter. Hello, Susan. Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon, wherever everyone else is. And it's a delight to be with you today again, Bill. Thanks. Looking forward to a great chat. And, and the the chat and the subject at hand for today's special briefing is something that quite literally will change the face of America. Last year, Congress passed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and that law alone will pump a trillion dollars into states, counties, and cities to build everything from bridges to broadband and even high-efficiency electric school buses. I love that part. This trillion dollars of investment came on top of hundreds of billions more in the American Rescue Plan that states and cities can, if they wish, use to fix and build infrastructure. So when you consider that 80% of the nation's infrastructure spending comes from state and local budgets, this new federal funding is truly a gift that'll keep on giving. We have a terrific panel of experts to discuss their strategies for navigating this new era, and you see them up on the screen. But first, just a couple of notes. As always, everything today is on the record. We've already taken questions in advance from many of you in the audience, and we've left plenty of time for discussion. Don't worry about that. So be sure to stick with us right to the end. And remember that replays of this and all of the past special briefings are available at the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. Just Google them and you'll find them. And one last thing, special briefing is supported by the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Advisory Board, and the Century Foundation. Thanks to you all. Now on to the panel. You'll be hearing from Colorado State Budget Director Lauren Larson about her view from the Rockies and what she's hearing from her budget office colleagues around the country as they look to the future, but also deal with, with huge surpluses that are piling up right now. Next up is Providence, Rhode Island Mayor Jorge Alorza, who has helped bring his hometown from deficits to fiscal stability since he took office in 2015. And by the way, we hope the mayor will talk about his own 10-year infrastructure plan. Next, we'll get some valuable insights from two Penn IUR board members, Larry Parks of Forethought Advisors and Patrick Brett of City. Now, practically every mayor talks about the need for more affordable housing. Remember that infrastructure includes housing and all the public investment you need to support it. And Larry is someone in the know. He spent more than two decades as a senior official of the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco. Patrick Brett has a unique perspective as head of city's huge municipal business. Today, Patrick will look not only at the rather unsettled state of the $4 trillion municipal bond market, but also how states and cities may continue to tap it to help leverage all of that federal money that's on the way. So with that, let's get right down to business. 
Lauren, Colorado is coping with fast population growth, but also lots of climate concerns. How are these impacting your state's infrastructure plan? And how is this showing up in the new budget that the legislature just uh, just passed and the governor signed? Thank you, Bill, and good morning. And thanks to the Volcker Alliance for hosting this event today. Lauren Larson, budget director for Governor Polis here in Colorado. And I'm also the president-elect for our State Budget Officers Association and have just been convening with the budget officers from around the country. And I would say the, my top line for what to think about in infrastructure investment right now is not to be focused on the color of money because there's a lot of investment going on, not just what's the planning for the JOBS Act or the IIJA, but also states are seeing really strong revenue results NASBA has a blog about this. You can see Colorado in April hit a record. A number of other states did as well. So the states are busy deploying and planning for how to spend their own state dollars, which are, you know, many of us, we're a conservative bunch as budget directors, and we are looking at recession risk on the horizon and thinking about good one-time investments, maybe if this revenue isn't sustained. So infrastructure is top of the line there. Also, I'll just offer some uh, data from, this is from the National Council of State Legislators, NCSL. They're showing that of, of the ARPA dollars, the fiscal recovery funds, about more than half of states are making infrastructure investments with those dollars. And about they're spent on average, those states are spending about a quarter of their allocations on infrastructure. And because Treasury, I think really the Treasury Department did an excellent job in rolling out that program. The rules allow for a very generous definition of revenue loss, not just compared to prior years, but what we were forecasted, what we were on path to receive. We were allowed to sort of have more flexibility in spending for the revenue loss. And states are harnessing that for infrastructure. So I think that's really exciting. That's maybe another $85 billion that's hitting the streets now and why we wait for the, the guidance from a lot of federal agencies on what's going to come out of IIJA. So turning to Colorado here, and you're right, we did just finish our budget and our historic legislative session where we had a great partnership and how to allocate the rescue plan dollars in a way that would be strategic, not spread it like peanut butter, really invest in some transformational areas. And then for our state one-time money, we were successful in saving half and investing half. And I think that's a great principle for states to think about. So we've doubled our, more than doubled our reserve in Colorado now to a strong 15%. But on top of that, we're able to use some of these one-time dollars to reach a historic transportation deal that never would have been possible without this extra money, where we have all interests aligned now and have a, our transportation system on a sustainable path when we layer in the money we're expecting from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, we had a 10-year transportation plan, but only four years of it was funded. So now with all these new resources, we have full funding on our 10-year plan, and that's really exciting and desperately needed in the state. We're also really excited about in doing the planning that's required for the IIJA We've, we're one of the first states to identify an infrastructure coordinator. We see this money flowing in. Not all of it's coming to states, I think, as um, one of your listeners pointed out. Or, um, But we're expecting 120 programs to receive some type of money here, and that's in 10 of our state agencies. So it's quite a coordination effort. And Colorado uh, passed, as part of our budget, we set aside 
a pretty large chunk of funds for state match so that for the competitive dollars we're going to get, we know that we can hopefully punch above our weight in the money we can pull down from IIJA. Some of the exciting things that we're going to be focused on, you mentioned the electric school buses. We had already gotten started on some of that with our state one-time dollars. Um, We're very focused also on climate risk here in the state. We've got a lot of water infrastructure investment that needs to happen and wildfire mitigation, forestry type things. So those are um, broadband, of course, in making sure we get um, strong broadband into all into we've set a goal to reach 99% of households by 2027 with the, again, not possible without these additional funds. So those are just a few highlights and can't wait to hear from your other panelists. Well, thank you so much, Lauren, and and stick with us for the Q and A because we have we have lots of Qs and and you guys have have all the As. Next up, as I mentioned, is Mayor Alorza from from Providence. The mayor has got a terrific website with uh, with some very ambitious plans for the city, and we're wondering how the how the the federal legislation is really going to affect many of your plans, especially for affordable housing, transportation, keeping the city on a good track. So, Mayor Alorza, please. Yeah, thank you. Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for having me. So, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's interesting. Before the money came in, you know, we would always say that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity that al- that would allow us to transform the trajectory of our city. And uh, while that's still true to a certain extent, as we've gone through the allocations, it's amazing how fast the money runs out. You know, with the with the various allocations, there just wasn't enough to do everything that we needed to do. And so we were also very strategic about it. We engaged the the broader community and uh, asked what kind of investments they would like to see. We engaged over 1,500 residents throughout the city over a uh, months-long process. And we arrived at a very good place that allows us to make very key investments, uh, the biggest investments being in in housing, um, but also making important investments across the board. Uh, the, um, before I get into the housing investments, I think it's really important to, to point out that the American Rescue Plan, those dollars have helped the city simply balance its books in our budget uh, over the past couple of fiscal years. Without this, we would have been looking at some you know, really serious and ugly cuts, potentially even tax increases at a time when you know, so many of our residents are facing the economic anxiety uh, that they lived through during the pandemic. And so being able to have uh, some stability in our budget and continue with our strong finances has truly been this great lifeline. And so we appreciate that part of the American Rescue Plan dollars and just keeping basic city services flowing. And now that, um, in fact, today, today at about 6 p.m. Eastern time, and the city council is going to be approving our American Rescue Plan uh, allocation budget. And as I mentioned, the, the largest share of those dollars is going to go towards housing. And uh, so, you know, this is uh, really exciting, but also emblematic of the first point that I made, that there's only so much reach that you can get through these funds. On the one hand, uh, the uh, the need to invest in housing has never been higher. And, and that means investing in new affordable units, investing in home repair programs, investing in rapid rehousing, um, homeless support, you know, so frankly, across the board, there's a great deal. There's a great deal of need, and uh, these dollars couldn't come at a better time. With that said, we also understand that there's an affordability crisis across the board throughout the city, and there's only so much that new units is uh, is going to help with. And so, 
you know, we're going to use these dollars very wisely, but we also understand that it needs to be a comprehensive approach if we really want to address the affordability, affordability issue in our city. So, you know, we have a comprehensive housing plan and where we're attacking it from all angles. We're looking at our zoning ordinances. We're looking at universities housing students on campus as opposed to off campus. We're looking at Airbnb. We're looking at you know, every aspect of the housing market and how we can adjust our policies and our investments so that in aggregate, we're meeting the needs that we're projecting over the next 10 years. That's helped by the American Rescue Plan dollars and hopefully by the uh, some infrastructure dollars coming down the pike. Uh, but no one is stepping into this believing that it's a cure-all for it. Uh, it's a good step, but only that good first step. Well, thank you very much. We'll get to Q&A later. Uh, I, I noticed on the, on the website, you talk about your, your 10-year plan. Tell us what, what lies ahead down the, you know, in, that, in that long-term vision. I think that this is really step number one for any city, metro area, or even state that's facing this housing crisis. There are a lot of really great and creative ideas, but you have to have a strategic plan for it. For that, you have to forecast out, well, what's projected demand? So how many new units will you need to produce, both in the private and subsidized market? And compare that to your actuals. You know, what are you projecting out right now to have a realistic sense? Okay, to get from here to here, it's going to take, yes, this amount of dollars in towards new affordable units. But that will only get you part of the way. So realistically, you know, what do we need to close that gap? And so our comprehensive plan you know, has all of that, you know, ranging from, as I mentioned, adjustments to the city zoning ordinance and looking at eliminating minimum parking requirements, allowing for smaller units. We've already done efficiency units. But then also looking at you know, the, the effects to the housing market of our universities, housing students, off campus as opposed to on campus, et cetera. Well, thanks. I can see Susan and Larry Parks are going to jump into this because this this is their bread and butter. Before we get to them and, and Susan will introduce them, just want to remind everybody, you're tuned into Special Briefing coming to you on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And by the way, watch this space for the new Special Briefing podcast, which is coming to you soon wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IOR Advisory Board, and the Century Foundation, of course, for your generous support. So now let me hand the, the Zoom mic over to our co-host, Susan Walker, to continue the discussion and introduce Larry Parks. Susan? Yes, thank you so much, Bill. It is a great pleasure for me to welcome Larry Parks, who is a member of Penn IOR's Advisory Board and also CEO of Forethought Advisors and also a long-term voice for affordable housing in the United States. So let me just start with that, Larry. I know you have other comments about the need for coordination and for transformational use of the infrastructure funds. How broadly can we plan and think about the potential and the barriers to using uh, these funds in transformational ways and also for delivering affordable housing. That's a lot. Take whatever piece you'd like, and we'll come back in Q&A. Wow. Okay, Susan, thank you. You know, you always are so provocative. I love being on your board because it's both informative and engaging and always thought-provoking and policy-oriented, so it's not just theoretical. So thank you, thank you. Bill, for the opportunity here um, to sort of, you know, I look at this in three different ways, right? The first is that I hear what the mayor is saying, and I agree. Mayor, I just say, you know, this is one of the few times I can say in my career that help is on the way. 
So ARPA was was sort of down payment one in this space. And I think you're ahead of the curve, Mr. Mayor, by looking at it constructively as to like both for fiscal dollar replacement, but also affordable housing. Number two is obviously what happens to son or daughter of Build Back Better, right? I think that it, my political hat says you don't waste a reconciliation. That's really Washington media talk, which means something will happen in that in that sort of scaled down version. The question is for all of us housers is does affordable housing get included in that title, which is really what's needed, because I think what what we see there is the, the big thing to me was the billion dollar production program using uh, Section 8 for production, which could be transformative for affordable housing long term, along with the down payment assistance programs that really exist to actually encourage home ownership in a very different way, particularly in a rising interest rate environment. If that doesn't happen, there's still increased appropriations that have been had by HUD in each of the past fiscal years, which Susan, you and all Washington hand like me, was unheard of for 30 years. Uh, HUD's budget is pretty large now. Uh, CDBG monies are pretty flexible. There's more money in Section 8. There's more money in public housing and modernization. I think that we get to see a housing title in any kind of uh, scaled down build back better simply because Chuck Schumer wants something for public housing in New York City. And I think we all benefit from him being the majority leader in that regard. So I'm optimistic in that space that there's real housing dollars coming. The third thing I would say in the infrastructure bill itself, and I'm sure this is going to be very hard at the state level and, and, the, um, and, the, and the local level, because you've got these different pockets of federal monies that have been staggered and are coming online. So the, the infrastructure bill, which is the subject of this dynamic here, is so exciting because I think, let's, to give you a little context, until the infrastructure bill was passed, we were, you know, we were dealing with deflation and no fiscal stimulus as part of the only tool the Fed had was really the Fed's monetary policy. We really couldn't get fiscal stimulus done in Washington. We couldn't talk, take advantage of decades low interest rates to actually leverage the, the federal borrowing capacity to actually deal with infrastructure. And then on the Democratic side, we had this inf- obsession with creating an infrastructure bank, which, di- which was like really sort of structural, but didn't actually deal with the funding. And then came Joe Biden. And so you get this $1.2 trillion thing from his administration that breaks the log jam. And, and I think we don't emphasize it enough, $110 billion in new monies just to fix roads. First investment in clean drinking water in decades, transformative broadband funding, largest investment in public transportation, tra- public transit in history, upgrading of ports and airports, electric, you know, we took the electrical vehicle issue on the electrical side and the environmental side, created resiliency, upgrading the power grid money, and then passenger and rail money that we haven't seen since Amtrak was created 50 years ago. That's all coming down the pipe. And Mr. Mayor, by the way, there's a set aside just for the Northeast Corridor in the Amtrak provision, which basically is Washington and Boston. The last time I checked, Providence was on that line. So there's new monies coming just for that. When you want to think think about housing and transit in a very different sort of way, just because there's new dollars coming. What I wanted to talk a little bit about, Susan, was really sort of the state money going through state governments, which I know Colorado is in a favorable nation status, but we have you know, basically a lot of divided government at the state level. So the idea of how that's going to be done and how the state legislatures are going to set priorities versus what the feds wanted, it's going to be an interesting play. It with, let's say you have a Republican legislature in Michigan and a Democratic governor, does Detroit benefit or not? You know, so those kind of big questions are on the table. I just use that as an example. And so we've got to really think about what that looks like. There are local monies that the local governments can compete for, which is e- easier to some, some extent. And then there are discretionary dollars. 
And so I tried to group a little bit on the discretionary dollars just to influence our conversation a little bit. So if you look at the discretionary dollars that are there, which means nonprofits or other instrumentalities can apply along with governments, there's a chunk of money for rural areas. There's a chunk of money for community, they call it the community, reconnecting community pilot program, which I think is sort of a take on the Boston Big Dig. <laughs> the whole notion that we're going to reconnect communities by, by lowering freeways and things like that and getting the community support. There's a billion dollars for that. There's R&D dollars, a large part of which I think universities will take advantage of. There's discretionary money around airports, facilities, and equipment and airport terminal programs, which means it doesn't have to go through the airport instrumentality, which is interesting. One chunk is $5 billion, another chunk is $5 billion. There's, there's a, probably the equivalent of $5 billion just for ferries, boats, and port infrastructure, some of which is discretionary, some of which goes to authorities. I think it's all about port resiliency, and it's all about getting shipping and goods being done. And then there's money for infrastructure for safety modernization grants for natural gas. And then there's a bunch of money for transportation, transit safety, that's all discretionary. There's money for infrastructure, project assistance grants, competitive rail grants, energy modernization, and a carbon dioxide transportation infrastructure finance innovation program. For the mayor's purposes, because of city like Providence, there's about a billion dollars for brownfield restoration project, which I think gets into the housing piece in a very different way. There's money for revolving loan funds, building retention, infrastructure, and communities program. That's a billion dollars. And then $6 billion for a battery material processing grant program, which I think is really designed to recreate a manufacturing sector in, this, in, this, in our society. So I say all that not to give you all those numbers and have you go, oh, my God, but that we've got three pockets, state money, local money, and this discretionary pot. I think, you know... In my celebratory state, the downside, and I'm sure this is where you get because you guys are smart guys and smart women on this one, is that the federal government, the real question is, can the federal federal government put money on the table to go beyond gap financing to actually fund initiatives? And this is huge. We have to use this as more than revenue replacement for state and local government. I know the ARPA money had to be used for that, but this money has to be more about how you do a transformative activity because the federal government has as I said at the beginning, didn't step up to the plate on this for 30 years. And we have to do more than use the money to offset state tax cuts, which is what I fear that's going to happen in some states. We're going to take money that was set aside for infrastructure at the state level and use the federal money as a replacement and then give a state a tax cut. Well, then you're permanently shifting the, the revenue stream for the state. And at the same time, this money is more episodic. So that worries me. So I would conclude by saying in our zeal to get the funding approved, which people like Susan and I really know all too well, is not the easiest thing in Washington. So salute the Biden administration. I also salute the Trump folks in the sense that they broke the logjam that the government could actually do things. With with, what Trump did at the end with PPP and what he did with sort of government funding a lot of the pandemic recovery. And all jokes aside, that shifted the conversation in Washington. Biden took advantage of it. I think what we see is what we're missing. We don't have a place-based overlay on all this discretionary money. So it's not like we have to see it happen in certain places, which is unfortunate. We don't have minority contracting requirements, which I think is a huge problem. We don't have benchmarks for community success. Coming out of this, we need to know government can do things well and can fund things well, and we need to show examples. We also need more flexibility for more leverage, which goes to Patrick's point that I think I'm handing it over to him, which is that how do we use this money? Now, it's huge, but how do we use it to be a multiplier? 
And um, the last thing I will leave you with is we need to strengthen our intermediary core to deliver because we have a lot of discretionary money. What does our intermediary system look like to be able to get that money to be effective and not just use for more of the same? Well, thank you, Larry. That's quite a call for action and thought as we go forward. And as you said, our next speaker is Patrick Brett, who is Managing Director and Head of Cities Municipal Debt Capital Markets and Capital Solutions. So Patrick, this is a moment of turmoil, and yet we have the long-term funding, which could be transformative ahead of us. Can you put these pieces of puzzle together and tell us where the municipal infrastructure market is likely to be and is now? Sure. I'd be happy to. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. And thanks to Penn, IUR, and Volcker for for doing this. Infrastructure is a huge topic. It's bigger than any one person certainly can get their heads around. It cuts across so many different silos. I think it lends itself really well to partnerships like the one between Volcker and Penn, IUR, and also entities like Penn, IUR that cut across all 12 of Penn schools. So it's a big topic. We'll cover it from my perspective over the next few minutes. I guess first with, I I will do a a little bit of an update on where the municipal bond market is, and then talk a little bit about the intersection of that and infrastructure investment in the country. I guess first in terms of the municipal bond market, we we are undergoing another period of pretty severe stress in the market. It's not completely shut down like it was in March of 2020, but the, the severity of the outflows that we've seen from municipal mutual funds, the drop in prices that we've seen in bonds has been, has been pretty severe. Everyone's probably looked at their, it's probably better not to look, but everyone's probably looked at uh, equity portfolios or equity prices so far this year. As much as that has been pretty surprising, the 18 or 20% drop in the S&P 500, bond prices have dropped even more. Uh, usually you think of bonds as the safe part of your portfolio, but not this time. Treasury bonds are down 20 or 25 points. Municipal bonds, believe it or not, have gotten hit even worse than treasury bonds. So by most metrics. So, and, and that, that has a lot to do with the concentrated buyer base that exists in municipals, primarily because of the exemption, the tax exemption that exists for probably three quarters of the issuance. So we, we are concentrated with municipal mutual funds, which have seen those sharp outflows I mentioned around over $50 billion so far this year. But uh, on the positive side, the market is still open. It hasn't closed like it did in March of 2020. There, and the closure happened in part because there were credit fears. We don't have those kinds of credit fears. States are flush with cash. Bonds are still coming to market. Issuance is only down about 7% so far this year. We've had over $150 billion in, in debt come to market. And we've had, even with the mutual funds selling, we've had individual investors, retail investors who buy individual bonds actually step into the market in a pretty significant way, especially over the last week or so, two or three times kind of the normal rate that we see uh, from those buyers. And that, that, that tends to be a sign of a bottom uh, in the market. And like I said, the the credit stress, the credit fears that existed kind of when we were going into the unknown in March of 2020, um, are at least for the moment, uh, pretty much off the table. We have had a drop in refinancing supply, which is kind of what you would expect as rates go up. It's not as interesting to refinance the debt that you brought recently. Um, But new money, which brings us over to the infrastructure topic, new money capital financing is is very much uh, still happening. Rates, even though rates have 10-year municipal rates, but 10-year treasury rates have doubled from around 1.5% up to 3%. 10-year municipal rates have tripled from 1% up to over 3%. So we've had, as much as those rates have gone up, by historic standards, those are still quite low. I mean, the, the rates, the cost of financing a capital project 
and municipals is basically about the same as it was back in 2018 or 2019. And we were obviously still investing plenty of money in infrastructure and doing tons of infrastructure projects made sense. Rates are still low. If you look back 40 years, rates are still lower than they've been, depending on where you look on the curve, kind of 75% or 65% of the time, uh, rates are lower than they've been over the last 40 years. So the market still works. It still makes sense from an absolute rate perspective. That gives you a little bit of an update on the market. I guess thinking a little bit about the intersection between the municipal bond market and the infrastructure investment conversation. First, I guess first for anyone that doesn't realize, why are we talking about the municipal bond market and infrastructure in the country in the same breath? Bill alluded to it in the opening. State and local governments finance most of the infrastructure in the United States of America. And state and local governments do most of their capital borrowing in the municipal bond market. So the the $4 trillion municipal bond market is the source of capital uh, for most of the infrastructure in the country. So obviously the health of that market is quite important when we're talking about infrastructure investment. As I mentioned, the absolute rates are completely manageable. It's not, it doesn't, it's not quite as great as long-term 1% or 2% money uh, that was available over the last couple of years, Uh, but that's not really a, um, a serious barrier. I think the, the bigger challenge is actually probably construction cost inflation, which we've seen and which has accelerated as bad as regular consumer inflation has been in the past couple of years. Construction cost inflation, as it has for decades now, has, un, has outpaced consumer uh, inflation. So I think the federal government has been criticized quite a bit for not spending enough on infrastructure. If you look over the last couple of decades, nominal spending on infrastructure has actually increased, but in real terms, it's been it's been less because there's been the federal government's been getting less and less bang for that infrastructure buck. Unfortunately, the IIJ that was just passed last year with the rate of inflation uh, that's that's occurring, that 1.2 trillion isn't worth 1.2 trillion in real terms anymore. At least when a lot of that's going to go towards construction spending, uh, and a lot of that's not going to be spent for a few more years. So that that is a serious headwind. It's something that we're going to have to deal with. I guess to, to the question next, some people would say, well, why? Well, maybe the municipal bond market's usually used for infrastructure financing, but do we really need to leverage this money now? We have $1.2 trillion in the IIJ and state and local governments are flush with money. Why would we borrow? And I think the answer is primarily one of the scale of the challenge. Uh, we're going to need to leverage those resources. If you think about it, the $1.2 trillion from IIJA, only about $550 billion of that was actually new new spending, uh, so incremental spending over baselines, that's going to be spent over the course of five years, so around 500, around 100 billion a year in new spending. And when you think about the scale of the challenges, American Society of Civil Engineers has an often cited estimate of a two and a half trillion dollar infrastructure spending gap in the country uh, over 10 years. That gap, that's $500 billion a year. You, you can already see that the magnitude, if you have $100 billion of extra spending against $500 billion of needs, you're going to need to leverage it. You could say, well, that there's, there's money in state and local governments um, in rainy day funds now that are over $100 billion, budget surplus that are in the hundreds of billions of dollars in aggregate. But still, if you add it all up, all the new spending in IIJA plus all the extra cash that state and local governments have, you still have over a trillion dollars of unmet infrastructure investment needs. So there is of course, the need to leverage this money in order to get projects done. Very often, the federal grant component will just be one component of an overall uh, infrastructure project. I mean, every, every municipal infrastructure project is unique. They're all financed in a unique way, but very, it's quite common that there's multiple different sources, multiple different forms of government support, as well as private sector capital leveraged in a single project. So a lot of times the 
the money from the IAJA will fit one or, or maybe multiple of those buckets. But in order to get sort of the full the full scale of the project capitalized, very often municipal bonds will be used in that effort. So I guess one, one question people in the market want to know is like, when, when will we see this supply uh, if there is going to be this leveraging of the IIJA money? I think a lot of it is still to come. There was a decent amount of the spending in IIJA that was sort of formula-based. So the, it was already said it, was, it could just be sent along to the states. If you look at the transport, the DOT money that was in there, around $150 billion of that, about a third of that was formula-based, but two-thirds of that is grant-based. So there's a subjective decision that's being made at DOT, and, and that's true across other funding uh, in IHA. So some of those programs are still being stood up. Some of those grant applications are still being made. Uh, so it's going to take time for that money to work its way through the system. Another example would be, and Larry was mentioning the CIFIA program, uh, the new carbon capture transportation program. There are new uh, the, the infrastructure bank, basically, for car- that, that's going to be set up within the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, that entity is being stood up. It's not going to even, I don't believe, be ex- I think the White House said they're going to be accepting applications around the end of this year. So some of those programs, they haven't even started to take applications, but they're going to be very significant sources of new capital investment into infrastructure projects in the country. And I think, and once those start once those grants and loan guarantees and loans start to get approved, then you will you will see municipal bonds paired with those projects and you will see some incremental increase in issuance. The overall municipal market could very well see lower issuance just because of the, the ref, refinancing volume of being lower. But that, I mean, that for bankers that might want to do more municipal bond deals, that might be disappointing. But for issuers who are trying to tap the market, it's, it's a very natural offset. So you'll, you'll, you'll have less supply coming from uh, refinancing and that'll create more space for new capital projects uh, that are going to need to get done. But I think in a nutshell, uh, that's what's going on in the municipal market and the intersection with infrastructure investment. Thank you so much, Patrick. We're going to go to Q&A. Panelists, uh, it'd probably be a good idea for you to turn your cameras back on. I'm not sure if we can, we can do that or not at, at our end. And I'm glad, Patrick, that you mentioned, besides the grants uh, and municipal bonds, all the, the loans and loan guarantee programs. I, I think that every governor's office, every city hall, every county, every county uh, executive's office is going to need a grant and loan specialist just to just to suss out what is it what what are the financing options available beyond beyond the grants this is a subject we're going to come back to and we, and we should watch we've got a lot of audience questions we do appreciate that and there's a whole bunch of questions about an issue that that Larry raised, I think. I think that Lauren raised as well. It's very germane for the uh, for, for Providence for the mayor. The question is splitting up the money between the states, between states and cities and counties, urban versus rural. How much how much cooperation or t- or tension is there right now, or is this an issue that's going to that's going to really develop over time in providing equitable distribution, not only of the money but deciding on what projects get financed if the state. Uh, controls the money. It's a jump ball. Uh, maybe why, why don't we start with with Mayor Lorza and then come back to Lauren and Larry. That's a great question. It's something that was on my mind throughout the throughout the conversation. Part of the challenge as well you know, to to introduce another another hurdle or another another challenge in the mix is um, that you know we we live in an age of outrage today, and uh, um, public officials were very sensitive to public to public opinion. It feels as though it's just a lot harder to get things done, particularly big things done. So here in our state, uh, where 
you know, still trying to understand exactly what the state's plan is for the infrastructure dollars. But our initial understanding is that it'll simply fund the state's existing infrastructure plan or capital capital plan, which is helpful in the sense that, you know, the state has fallen behind on road and bridge repair. And uh, these are central needs. And so we should be investing in this space. But it would also be a miss because what an incredible opportunity to think about transformative projects. One particular challenge is how do you take into account the needs that have been identified at the city? We don't have county government here in Rhode Island, but you know, at county or even the metro, metro level. And I'll give one concrete example that we'll need to, you know, that, that we'll need to sort through. I think it's universally understood, at least here in Rhode Island, that creating a tighter link to Boston would be, uh, uh, would be strategically smart to do. You know, the 95 corridor is already packed uh, with traffic and cars. Um, and we have the rail line, the Amtrak rail line that is poised for an upgrade. But uh, we also have the commuter line. And uh, for a long time, we've been advocating for just better connectivity, easing the commute from uh, Providence to Boston and vice versa. How do we reach across state borders and by extension also county and, and municipal borders and jointly agree to invest in those, in those kinds of projects? I think that this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that, uh, that the sheer scale of these infrastructure dollars presents to us is one that um, you know, we, should really, we should really take advantage of. Um, but at the same time, you know, the state has a number of significant needs and sort of you know, the, the low-hanging fruit. And if those can be done with relatively little opposition, um, little public outcry or outrage, and uh, put people to work right away, you know, all of the incentives seem to steer us in the direction of doing the easy thing and not the transformational thing. So while this is an incredible boon and an amazing opportunity for us, it might be so much of an opportunity that it prevents us from you know, being a little bolder and thinking a little bit bigger about what we can do with the dollars that we have in front of us. Lauren, how does, how does this play out in, in, in Colorado? You've got urban, rural, city, state, county, uh, county, state, all, all sorts of different divides and, and, and lines of authority. I'm struck, Mayor, by what you said, because what, what we feel here is the pressure really just to kind of spread it like peanut butter, right? There's, can you, a, a little bit here, a little bit here. And I think one um, big advantage that was striking a bipartisan deal in Colorado early on, on what are the, with, through a listening tour around the state, what are the top needs in the state, rural and urban? And can we, you know, is there some consensus on those? And the three that was the top were housing that's affordable, not just affordable housing, but workforce housing, as well as um, low-income housing, behavioral health challenges, and just workforce in general and the, the crisis that. So I do think in some in our leadership's decision to focus in those areas has been helped to prevent, to focus on investments and prevent the peanut butter spread, but it's, it's, it's a huge force. It's really hard to resist. And I'll just mention one shovel-ready program. We've found that I, I think sort of striking that balance where it's meeting the needs and getting out money to a lot of different areas, but it's also collectively or it, it's turning out to be good stimulus investment because of so much of a shovel ready. And that is uh, our revitalizing main streets program. So urban areas can use this to add public transit, 
rural areas can use it to draw visitors back to their downtowns. Setting it up to be flexible based on the locality has ensured, and and the and that it, the projects have to be shovel ready. They have to go out the door and spend fast. Um, that has been um, a really successful program that has sort of bridged that divide. I think. Director Larson and uh, Mayor Larsa, and also Patrick Brett and Larry Parks. I have a uh, broader question that this that your comments so far, I think, points to, which is. Is it possible that the federal grant and guarantee approach itself can bring people together in a good way to help transform major infrastructure investments that are productive and equitable? Because, in fact, it, it's a grant program and it needs to bring people together to apply for grants and also guarantees. Or is this the fact that we have five years to spend that? will just go to, not to undermine the importance of shovel ready, but sort of what is as, a, as opposed to what another member of our board, Jonathan Rose, likes to call pencil ready, that it is actually thought through for its major impact going forward. And maybe it's different for different top, for different areas of infrastructure, such as water and broadband. Maybe there are processes and transportation in place in those areas. And then a final question. These are really three questions. What can we do to help make for transformative investments, we being the private public sector and government and the academe itself? Susan, let me take a crack at that because it goes with Bill's question in general, too. I think you're spot on. Like I said, the missing thing of the missing things that I'll reemphasize place based overlap. The whole notion of are we trying to to, to really transform community in place. And I think the mayor said it the best here in that what we have to do is pretty simple. The federal government has to step in one more time. In the old world, there would have been a technical corrections bill that required that there be some kind of competitive point system that encourages this kind of local coming together. In the new world in which we live, where it's hard to get things through Congress, it's gonna to have to be done at the regulatory level. It's gonna to have to be OMB. It's going to have to be OIRA, which is getting really into the weeds. But I know Lauren, as a budget person, is used to the weed stuff. So, um, And this is really a, a question of can we make this a regulatory crosscut where we give points at the discretionary level? We give points to states if they want to come in at the, at, for, more, for more funding, if they have had these kind of processes at the local level uh, involving business, involving labor, involving the nonprofit community uh, to really focus on infrastructure and not the soft services side, but like, what does it mean to be transformative in these areas that actually have long-term implications? The other thing, I think, Susan, you hit on with the guarantee side, which is the private activity bond was actually increased in these bills as well. How do we use the, tie the private activity bond increase by the federal government to some of these guarantee and revolving loan funds to sort of create a multiplier effect? And as, as was said by Mr. Citibank said very eloquently, the whole notion of the carbon fund that's going to be done later in the year, we can also put points in that to encourage that kind of planning. So there's a lot of opportunity if we come together, and this is where Penn IUR is so brilliant, to be able to put out there that these things need to be had at the regulatory level so that we can all achieve the objectives, which a lot of people want to see happen. And so we don't have this kind of, we create a, a federal pull to take away the pressure, the, the likelihood of just doing, doing shovel-ready projects. 
by saying, oh, the federal government's encouraging this. We, we, we're not getting federal monies that we could get because they're putting points behind projects that actually require longer term thinking. Patrick, do you see a role for how this plays out as the rules are developed by regulators for more cooperation? Sure. And I think if you're a policymaker, what in this space, I mean, you you want to try to design programs where the, the federal government's money is additive, um, where you're you're helping attract other private sector and public resources and you're not crowding them out and you're getting bigger things done. And I think we do we have good models for that, whether it's the low income housing tax credit program and affordable housing, very well designed program over many years, or or the TIFIA program in transportation in our transportation infrastructure bank in the US DOT or hopefully the new CIFIA program in the Department of Energy, uh, which is gonna get stood up because of the IIJA. The private activity bonds that Larry mentioned, another great way of using capital for public sector goals and priorities. So yeah, I think we have good models. It's hard to do in practice. I would say, I mean, from my perspective nationally, you certainly do, to your first question, Susan, I, I do see definitely federal money can, it doesn't always, but federal money can kind of bring together stakeholders across multiple levels of government around projects in a way that it would be hard to do otherwise. I mean, I'd be curious to hear from Director Larson and Mayor Lorza how much they see that happening on the ground from their perspective. But I have seen that happen in the past where even a 5% or 10% of the cost of a, a project, especially if it's expiring and the money's going to go away, you, you will see units of government kind of come together to work on things. Director Larson, is that what what helped get this 10-year requirement actually filled that you spoke about earlier that amazingly we you now have your 10-year plan funded? Or how did this guarantee grant work for you? I think you're highlighting, Susan, a key question where what does good look like? And can the federal government set a standard and then incentivize states to move and regions to move to that standard? There's a huge opportunity here. Think of sort of general performance management frameworks where, you know, the big goal at the top and then think about how you can incentivize behavior to achieve it. I think there's a huge opportunity there. And one that I'm worried about is a workforce generally to accomplish all these projects. And I hear in the, you know, in our budget officer meetings, states are competing with each other for workers and driving, you know, collectively that's not you know, maybe not driving towards optimal resource allocation. Can we think about what are some structures that have us working collaboratively, some incentives that have states and locals working collaboratively? I, I do know um, of a few states that are trying to drive aligning with locals through offering a match. I know we're doing that in Colorado. I think Indiana had an innovation where if you, you'd have a, uh, I think if it was a 50% match if you came on standalone, but if you brought a, your whole region with you, a, a group of localities, you'd get a 75% match, right? So doing some things that drive behavior through incentives, um, there's there's a, a real big opportunity here. And I might suggest workforce is a great place to start because there's the key to successful implementation of all of this money is having a strong workforce and a lot of areas are feeling the pinch. Let's come back to the question of workforce. But Mayor Lorso, I want to give you an opportunity to come back to the question of connectivity between Providence and Boston, because that's so obviously important for affordability, for one, access to more affordable housing and access to jobs on, on all sides. What could happen? What could change to make such a good regional outcome come about 
Is it just politics? Is it something in the regs that might be able to get this kind of coordinated investment on the list? I'll start off by saying that um, you know it's very obvious to us here in Rhode Island that that would be um, that that would be a benefit. We found that it's not so obvious to folks in Massachusetts. <laughs> We're a lot more interested in doing it than than they are. So that's part of the equation. Uh, but I don't think they're uninterested in it. Much of it has to do with the upgrades needed to the to the existing line and investments that would have to be made to the commuter rail. And then you also take into account uh, the interests of many of the communities along the way, most of them in Massachusetts, that the train simply wouldn't stop at in order to make it feasible for a 45-minute to and from commute. So there are some politics to it. There are some regional issues. But you know, frankly, this is one of those areas where additional resources, they paper over a lot of, a lot of the conflicts and challenges, and they help you overcome it. So, so that's certainly one thing. I did want to come back to your original question, Susan. and you know, the sheer scale of the infrastructure dollars is impressive. With that said, I think I'm even more excited about the discretionary dollars, although, you know, it's a small, you know, it's a, it's a relatively small percentage of the total dollars for the reasons that were mentioned. You know, it forces us to think creatively and to think uh, a little bit bigger and bolder. But even if those projects, they end up not winning or they're, they're, they're not funding, We've seen it happen before. I believe about four years ago, DOT had a similar competition for about $40 million. And it forced cities throughout the country to think very creatively about mobility, infrastructure, reconnecting neighborhoods, and equity. Uh, Columbus, Ohio ended up winning, winning the, um, the challenge. Every other city had done so much work to bring stakeholders together that I think it sparked so many great ideas that we've pursued in the interim. And so, you know, I, I'm really excited about these discretionary funds. Uh, of course, much, you know, as Director Larson mentioned, much will depend on, you know, what kind of incentives are written into, are written into these, uh, these, these discretionary uh, fund challenges. But the capacity and the ability to truly, truly be transformational, I think, will very much come from the discretionary dollars, even if, even if it's a smaller percentage, as much as with the rest of the dollars. Kind of a comment and a question combined. One of the benefits of regional transportation planning and projects is that it it tends to increase real estate values, uh, especially if you're if you're close to the train line. Not just residential, not just for residential use, but for commercial use. You think about about all the Amazon uh, fulfillment centers around a uh, highway interchange or an airport. And yet, as my friends at the Lincoln Institute point out, local governments and regional governments generally don't manage to, to, to capture that extra value to, to put it back into, to, to help finance the transportation programs. It goes into local coffers, but there's, there's, there's not a particularly good relationship. You see this in, in the Washington area and the, the New York area uh, as well. And it's something that may, that may be need to address to provide incentives for extra financing, as well as to get these projects off the ground. I mean, if we look globally, obviously, there's places like Hong Kong where they've funded their entire transportation system through exactly that, through parceling out. But that's, I mean, the transportation entity, I think, their controls or owns a lot of the real estate. So it's a little bit more of a closed loop. I think here in the U.S., we do, we do at least have, in the municipal bond market, we do have things called like tax increment finance districts, which can at least be set up to try to capture some of that incremental revenue that, that's accrued and try to finance not just transportation infrastructure, but other infrastructure uh, in the area. So we have some of the models. I don't think we do as good of a job as is done globally. Indeed. Well, we're, we're getting close to the top of the hour. I've got one last 
kind of a lightning round question. The subject of inflation has come up uh, on and off during this during this discussion today. It's on everybody's mind at the ground level when you're planning out your projects right now in Providence, in Colorado, around the NASBO network. What are people seeing as the big inflation problems? Is it is it materials? Is it lack of materials? Is it is it labor? As, as I think Lauren mentioned, where are the choke points? Lauren and, and Mayor Lorza, uh, Mayor Lorza, your mic is on. So why don't you, why don't you go? Why don't you go first? And then Lauren, and then and then we'll wrap. Well, I, I can speak to projects that we have ongoing. You know, at first during the during the pandemic, it was materials, and then uh, the word is that the prices of you know materials are coming back down to earth, but labor still remains incredibly high. And Lauren, similar, and we're reevaluating every capital project for. Cost overruns? Do they need rescoping? It's it's a, having a major impact. Well, with that, why don't we wrap up? This brings another special briefing to a close. We are putting up our panelists' contact information on a slide. If you'd like to follow up, all of this will be available on the replay on the Volker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. But if you want to if you want to get in touch with any of the panelists or any of us, please uh, please do. Uh, and speaking of panelists, our thanks to Laura Larson. Mayor Alorza, Larry Parks, and Patrick Brett. Thanks also to Susan Wachter and the Volker Alliance team behind the scenes, Noah Wynn-Ritzenberg, Adam Campaglio, Graham Dowd, Emily Eaton, Steve Kligge, and up in Rhode Island, Maggie Mello. Special briefing comes to you with the generous support of the Volker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Advisory Board, and the Century Foundation. Thanks to you all. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.